On September 2, 1901, a man named Herbert Squires leaves Beijing on a train. Squires is 42 years old, with dark hair, slicked back and parted in the middle. Square-jawed and handsome in the way of a retired athlete. Like Ted Danson on Cheers. Or the straight guy in old movies who thinks he's doing pretty well until the Marx Brothers show up. And suddenly he's got a pie in the face and his girls run off with Groucho. Now see here. Well, I never. Yeah, that guy. The Honorable Herbert Goldsmith Squires is a diplomat. The Secretary of the American Legation in China. But when fighting broke out the year before, in the so-called Boxer Rebellion, and the foreign quarter Beijing was under fire, Squires was also a kind of general. Squires, with other foreign leaders, organized 20,000 troops to break the siege and take Beijing. And now, five days before the official peace agreement, Squires is leaving. All of his things, and those of his wife and family, are pulled on carts through the burned-out city, where men are still being executed in the street. And when all these possessions are loaded on the train, they fill several cars. Somewhere within the cars full of ancient porcelain and sculpture and artifacts is a large green rock. 640 pounds of jade. One of the largest pieces of carved jade in the world. A carving of a mountain scene of men gathered a long time ago beside a stream to get drunk and write poetry. This is the Object Podcast, produced by the Minneapolis Institute of Art. The Object is made possible by generous support from Ameriprise Financial, a proud supporter of the Minneapolis Institute of Art and committed to the future of art and culture in the communities they serve. Ameriprise, helping people feel confident about their financial future since 1894. Today, the story of a stone carried around the world by obsession. A story of possession. What happens when we can't let go? And what happens when we do? It's the first episode of Season 4. I'm Tim Gehring. Now, let's go join those poets getting drunk by the stream. It's the year 353, almost 1,700 years ago. It's spring. Time for a bath and celebration, right? He made it through winter. Here's some soap. A scholar named Wang Shuji decides to invite some of his scholar friends to this pavilion by a stream, the Orchid Pavilion, and 41 people show up. Now, Shuji had grown up pretty well off in pretty bad times. 
one war after another. The War of the Eight Princes, the invasion of the five barbarians. Shiji's family was fine. And Shiji gets one nice government appointment after another. But eventually he's had enough. The wars never end, and neither does the paperwork. And so, as someone who wants for nothing, he does nothing. He walks around a lot. He raises geese a lot. And he writes a lot. He writes beside his goose pond so much that his pond turns black, apparently, from rinsing his brush in the water. He learns a lot about geese and a lot about writing until the two begin to merge. He's moving his wrist the way geese move their necks back and forth until he's managed to invent an entirely new style of calligraphy. The style described as urgent thunder and falling rocks. A mountain peak collapsing on a distant shore and someone running from danger and grasping a rotten vine. Well, Shiji and his 41 friends at the pavilion decide to play a drinking game. They sit along the stream on either side and servants float cups of wine downstream on lotus leaves. If a cup stops by you, you have to write a poem. Now, what's not totally clear is the drinking. Do you drink and write? Or if you can't think of a poem, then you have to take a drink? Either way, you're drinking. Which seems like a good idea at the time. Still does, maybe. It's like when Bob Dylan introduces the Beatles to marijuana. Do you know this story? 1964 in New York, Dylan shows up at the Beatles Hotel with a bunch of... Well, this is a family show. Google it. Suffice to say, Paul McCartney makes his roadie follow him around with pen and paper to write down all these great ideas he's coming up with while he's stoned. And in the morning, the roadie hands him this little slip of paper that just says, There are seven levels. McCartney's like, what the f***? Anyway, when the wine is run out and the cups stop floating downstream, these guys have written 37 new poems under the influence. Most of them are probably like McCartney's There Are Seven Levels. But who knows? The poems have all disappeared. In any case... Shiji decides to put them together in a kind of book to mark the occasion. And he writes a preface. And because Shiji has become a master calligrapher, watching his geese by the pond, these 324 characters in the preface become some of the most beloved words ever written in China. Now, let's jump ahead to the 1780s, some 1,400 years later. To Beijing, where the 
Qianlong Emperor is on the throne. He's been on the throne a long time, almost 60 years now. He has plenty of money, and he's delegated a lot of duties. So, he can focus on what he truly loves, poetry. He reportedly writes some 43,000 poems before he dies at 88, which works out to about 1.3 poems a day if he started writing at birth. Most of his poems are terrible. Just a few months ago, actually, a Chinese author wrote an assessment of the Qianlong Emperor's poetry and called him the worst poet in Chinese history. Well, the emperor doesn't think so. He puts his poetry on everything he can, including a lot of jade carvings. The emperor likes jade at least as much as poetry, maybe more. He likes jade so much he starts a war with Burma, now Myanmar, to get their jade. It goes badly. Of course, he writes a poem about that, too. Quote, My finest soldiers were scalded, divided, driven into gullies like cows in a pond. They perished pile on pile. My generals are a joke. Yeah. Well, the Qianlong Emperor has plenty of jade anyway. Though it takes years for someone to cut a boulder out of a quarry and send it on a long wagon train of jade, pulled by horses and pushed by thousands of men across the country to Beijing, to the imperial workshops in the Forbidden City. And so, around the late 1780s, the emperor commissions an enormous jade mountain, at the time the largest jade carving in China, and has it carved with the scene of poets drinking and writing by the Orchid Pavilion all those years ago. He puts one of his poems on the back, which you don't need to hear. And reportedly, he carves Shiji's preface himself on the front. Herbert Squire shows up in China almost a century later, in 1898 just as the Boxer Rebellion is heating up. Squires was born in Ontario, went to school in Minnesota and Maryland before joining the Army to fight in the Indian Wars. His cavalry regiment killed nearly 300 Lakota people in the Wounded Knee Massacre in South Dakota. But Squires was off getting a promotion and missed the massacre by a week. In China, he misses nothing. His home in the American compound is apparently the place to be. His wife is a granddaughter of Jacob Astor, the American aristocrat. And at the Squires, you can talk porcelain and politics all you want. But Squires isn't really here to make nice. China is opening up, whether it wants to or not, right? Opening to the missionaries and merchants from America and Europe. And... By 1898, some people have had enough. 
a group calling itself the Righteous and Harmonious Fists, forms in northern China to fight the foreign influence. Young Chinese men who train in traditional martial arts, which the Americans call boxing. And so these boxers start fighting Christian missionaries and eventually they take their fight to the foreign quarter of Beijing. The Imperial Army joins their cause at first, and in 1900, they besieged the foreign quarter for 55 days. Until the Americans and Europeans call in their 20,000 soldiers and destroy the Imperial Army and much of Beijing, while the Empress and her court flee the city. And somehow, in the midst of all this, Squires manages to acquire several train cars full of art. Certainly, there's plenty of plunder to be had. After the siege is lifted, auctions are held every day but Sunday. Of all the stuff that soldiers and others are taking out of palaces and homes. But Squires has his own connections an American advisor to the royal court, who's also an expert on porcelain and lacquer, the pastor at his Catholic church, who sells him a huge collection of porcelain, safe from the boxers by missionaries, and even a journalist for the Times of London, who mentions that, quote, the finest piece of jade, Peking, came into his possession and he sold it to Squires for 2,000 pieces of silver. Squires returns to America and tries to donate much of his collection to the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York. But he's accused of looting by Life magazine and others even though the American ambassador to China defends him, saying it's all misinformation, that Mr. Squires is entirely guiltless of any such thing. The State Department defends him, calling him an enthusiastic collector, bringing home a large collection of curios, which he has accumulated in legitimate ways. The Met defends him, too, calling it an outrage to think the Met would even consider accepting loot and calling Squires a gentleman. But the Met doesn't accept his collection. Over the years, Squires shows some of his art at the Smithsonian and sells some of it to buy a yacht. And then, in 1908, on loan from Squires, the Met displays the Jade Mountain. But Squires is haunted by his collection the rest of his life. He wants to run for governor of New York, and who knows, maybe then for president. But his reputation never recovers. And he dies in 1911, at just 52. In the spring of 1912, 
what's left of Squire's collection, is put up for auction at the American Galleries in Manhattan. And what's left is plenty. The auction runs every afternoon for four days. And on the last day, April 12, 1912, the Jade Mountain comes up for bidding. A man going by the name of T.B. Springer offers the highest bid, $4,000 for the Jade Mountain. Now, a man named T.B. Walker had arrived in New York in March, checked into the Hotel Seville, and went on a spending spree for weeks, spending a million dollars, supposedly, on art for his personal gallery back home in Minneapolis. Whether T.B. Springer and T.B. Walker are the same person? Well, hard to say, but the Jade Mountain is bought for T.B. Walker, and it's crated up and put on a train and shipped to Minneapolis. Now, T.B. Walker has one basic philosophy in life. Buy low, sell high. That's it. Oh, and never eat grapefruit and sleep with a pistol under your pillow. Walker spends his whole life trying to strike it rich, even when he is rich. When he's young, he buys up a train car full of grindstones, you know, for milling, and drags them around the Midwest trying to sell them. He's still dragging his grindstones around when he comes to Minneapolis, the milling capital of the world, right? And there he sells what he has left and gets in the lumber business. Eventually, he's buying entire forests and the sawmills to cut them up and the towns to house the workers, all to make boards to build cities that burn almost as soon as they're built. Buy low, sell high. By the time he buys the Jade Mountain, in New York, in 1912. T.B. Walker is one of the ten richest men in the world. Walker builds an addition to his house in Minneapolis to put all the arties buying, and then another addition, and another, and another, until his gallery is bigger than his house. Anyone who wants, more or less, can come up to the house, ring the bell, and a maid in a white apron will come to the door and let you into the galleries every day but Sunday. Walker is a more-is-more guy, right? He buys Renaissance paintings and cowboy art and the life mask of Lincoln, this bronze cast of the president's face. And Walker buys a lot of jade. When he gets the Jade Mountain, he puts it on a round, antique table in the middle of the gallery, like a centerpiece. And on at least one occasion, he has the table set for dinner, so his guests can eat around the Jade Mountain, carved with the scene of poets who, with all their power of imagination, never imagined people like this. On a continent, they didn't know existed. 
In the preface that Shiji wrote, and the emperor carved in the Jade Mountain, he thinks about growing old. When we become tired of our desires, he writes, and the circumstances change, grief will arise. What previously gratified us will be in the past. But Walker doesn't see it that way. He never stops buying, right? Even after that spree in New York in 1912, when he's already 72 years old. Walker has paintings hung from floor to ceiling and still doesn't have room for them all. So, eventually he buys more land and builds a proper museum. Walker dies in 1928, and a few years later, his museum falls apart in the Great Depression. The government takes over, and when the museum comes back from the dead, it's a modern art museum, the Walker Art Center. All the stuff T.B. Walker collected is sold off or given away. The Jade Mountain comes to the Minneapolis Institute of Art in 1976 and, for the most part, never leaves. But let's go back to Shiji one more time. All those years ago, Shiji spends his last decade in the mountains, among the bamboo forests and the little streams. He's often sick, can't eat, can't sleep. He's an old man by 50. Though he was born with everything, he seems to know early on that you keep nothing. Your friends, your health, your stuff. None of it is really yours. Not for long, anyway. Where there is a beginning, he writes, there is also an end. To meet and depart again is a common human experience, he writes in a condolence letter to a friend. What else can I say? has been the Object Podcast, produced by the Minneapolis Institute of Art, and made possible by generous support from Ameriprise Financial. I'm Tim Gearing. Welcome to Season 4, with a new episode every month. Leave us a review wherever you listen. Subscribe so you never miss an episode. And thanks very much for listening. Got a fish all day for a good